This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. So we're in the Easter season, just a few weeks away from the biggest day kind of in church calendar. And it's one of those times where we talk about invitations. And I want to give you some statistics as to why we talk about invitations during this time of year. The reason that we talk about inviting people to come to church with you is because every one of us has some some family, some friends, some people that we love that are in our lives that do not have a life-giving church family. And really, we want that for them. It's not an issue of more attendance, but I've said this before, our church is not big enough if there's a hurting family that doesn't have a church home. All right, in our community, our church is not big enough. And so we believe that we're here to, to reach them, that those that are far away from God can find a home with us here. And so there's a, a big, big part of that is, is us being willing to invite. Tom Rainer, in his book, The Unchurched Next Door, said this, 82% of people who are not attending church are somewhat likely to attend church if they are personally invited. If they're personally invited. Really, oftentimes, the thing that stands in between significant eternal change in someone's life that you love is just simply a personal invitation. And the reason that Easter is so important is that they discovered this. 38% of people surveyed said that they were more open to an invitation than involves faith during the season of Easter. Right. So Easter is just one of those times culturally we're aware of our spiritual lives. We know it's more than just a bunny and candy and Easter dinner. So there's just something embedded in our culture that leverages that awareness. And so it's a good time to leverage invitations. And so how do we do good invitations? One way that we do that is we use social media and we use it with the hashtag Easter at Vortex. Now, many of you are on social media, whether it be uh, Instagram or Twitter or uh, Facebook, whatever it is that you're using. But really, this is what we like to call like a shotgun blast. This is not a personal invitation. This This is just getting it out there. And what this helps to do is it helps your friends who see you post about this go, oh, I click on that hashtag and I can see all my other friends that have also invited their friends. And so it helps them figure out who's going to be here and helps them understand the community. It's really uh, a good way for us to get that out there. We're going to put uh, all the graphics out there for you to share this week. Uh, You have invite cards in your worship guides today, though, to also do personal invitations for friends and family. For friends and family, personal invitations. And this is where you get face-to-face with somebody and you invite them to come to church with you because you know that they don't have a life-giving church family. Statistically, for us who live in Stanley County, that's between six and seven out of our ten friends do not attend church regularly. All right? That's a big number. That's a lot of people that need hope and need love and need restoration. And they can find that just simply at the 
the invitation that you have to leverage for them. So here's some ways that you can can actually leverage a good invitation this Easter. One is to offer to meet them and sit with them. Uh, many of you have like single mom friends. Okay, can I just tell you that I think single moms are more intimidated to go to church than any other group out there. They're, they're living in the hardest job that's possible. And the reason is, is that not only do they have to get their kids up and all of that, but they face going into a large crowded auditorium where they sit totally alone. All right? So for them, why not just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to meet you in the parking lot. I'm going to help you with your kids. I'm going to help you get them checked into Vortex Kids, and then I'm going to sit with you. Which service do you want to come to? Or offer to take the person that you're inviting to breakfast before or lunch after, but make a good invitation. Because for many people, life and death hangs on our capacity to invite them into this great movement that we call God and Jesus and what he's doing in the midst of his church. Now, so we get started with today, we're in a series called Chemistry. I want to tell you a story. It's a story that emerged in the mid to late 1800s in the, in the upper Midwest. In the upper Midwest, they get uh, what, what we call now uh, lake effect snowstorms. And, you know, if it snows around here, like it snowed this week, we measure snow by flakes, right? <laughs> That's right. That's how we measure snow. In in lake effect situations, they measure it by foot per per hour, like that's how much it snows. Meteorologists say that during a lake effect blizzard, that the snow will be so intense that you can hold your hand up in front of your face and you can't even see it. That's how, that's how intense it is. And so in the late 1800s, without any meteorology, without any awareness, farmers would be working in the fields, and a lake effect snowstorm would hit. And they would get trapped in the middle of this massive blizzard with what is now labeled as extreme whiteout conditions. And they would wander through this storm and die frozen often in their backyard, unaware of how close they were to their home because they were so disoriented and blinded. So they developed a system, very simple system, because if you're a farmer, even if it's snowing, you still have work to do. You still have to go take care of your livestock. You still have to feed them. They still have to eat during the day. There's still stuff that must be done. And so the farmers developed a system where they would tie a rope to their back door and run that rope all the way to the barn. And they would, in the middle of the blizzard, hold on to the rope as they walked to the barn, then get in the barn, get their work done, and hold on to the rope, and the rope would lead them home. See, still to date, in the upper Midwest, upper reaches of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, where, where there is a large amount of agriculture as industry, the meteorologists will still, when they're predicting one of these storms, advise the people, tie a rope to your back door if you're going to go outside and hold on to the rope. Because if you get blinded in a whiteout condition, that rope will lead you home. You see, many of us, 
got lost in the storms of life doing good and necessary things. Good and necessary things. Not, not doing bad things, not doing things that were evil, but things that were necessary. But we've got lost in the storms of life trying to just do those things that are good. And there's something that's happened. That while focusing on those good, necessary things, we've let go of that rope that leads us home in the middle of the storm. While focusing on those good, necessary things, the things that we need to do, we've let go of the rope. So as I heard that story, I was reminded of a very small verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to make some application from that verse as we get started today. That Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. The cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is describing a rope. See, the, the strength of a rope is found in the fact that there is unity of many. There are many strands that are wrapped together and wound together to become a rope. And I love the context of this verse because it says that when we are just by ourselves, one can be overpowered. And two, you might have a chance to defend yourself. But notice, not, not take any new ground, not advance, not grow. You just might be able to defend. But a cord of three strands is not easily broken. What is the parts? What are the parts that make up what we'll call the rope of life? What are the parts that make up that rope that we are supposed to hold on to that leads us home in the middle of a storm? So I think the answers are all found in the answers that Jesus gives in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, he was questioned by a Pharisee. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I taught on this last week, so I'm not going to get too deep into this. But Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But like Jesus, he didn't stop there. He didn't just simply answer the question. He continued on. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what are the three strands of the rope that we need to be holding on to. Number one is a life-giving relationship with Jesus. If we're ever going to find our way home, we have to have a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants that with you. He's paid the price to have it with you. And if you, if you don't really understand that, let me just invite you to be with us next week because that's what the whole message is going to be about. All that God has leveraged for us to have a relationship with Him as we remember the cross of Jesus and celebrate communion together. It's going to be a powerful, powerful weekend for us. I want you to be here next week. A life-giving relationship with, with Jesus. But, but many of us, if we were answering that question just as Christians, that's all we'd say. We just need a relationship with God. But that's not Jesus' answer. Jesus also says we need a loving relationship with our neighbors. We need a loving 
relationship with our neighbors. And understand that the context that he gives us paints neighbors as more than just the people who live next door. It's our family, our friends, and the people who live in our community. It is a broad, inclusive statement. We need a loving relationship with our community. That's it's not just enough to love Jesus. You need people in your life too. But it's not just those two things. There's something even bigger than that. Number three, we need a chance to use our abilities and gifts to make an eternal difference in others' lives. Love your neighbor as yourself. Can I tell you what that is? It's purpose. That we need purpose. We need to love God. We need to love other people. And we need purpose. And when those three things intersect, it becomes a rope of life that we can hold on to in the middle of storms and it will lead us home. See, this is why I think the church is so powerful. The church is so powerful. Look at this. The local church unites our relationship with God friendship with others and our ability to serve under a common purpose to make a significant difference. And there are many people in our culture who say it's okay, just go be a Christian. You don't have to go to church. It's kind of an option. But in the Bible, it's never presented that way. That's not a biblical perspective. And really, what happens in this place is so important because it brings together all of the things that God designed in your heart to bring you alive. Right here in one place. So I thought it would be helpful to look at three different passages of Scripture that talk about the church. Just to kind of set a foundation for when we talk in just a moment about what it means to have chemistry with us as a church. Number one. Out of Ephesians 2, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Christ is the one who holds the building together. He's talking about the church who holds in a metaphor kind of way. Christ is the one who holds the building together and makes it grow into a holy temple of the Lord. You are now like a building, so he is showing us the language is that of a simile. He's using some uh, kind of word pictures to describe what the church looks like. You are like a building with the apostles and prophets as the foundation with Christ as the most important stone. Many of us learn that verse with Christ as the cornerstone. And you Gentiles, that's all of us in this room, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens with everyone who belongs to the family of God. That we are a part of a movement that God is building. Later on, he's going to develop this image as the body of Christ. That we all play different roles. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet. But we're all a part, all designed to be a part. Look at this verse out of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews just makes this so clear for us. We should keep on encouraging one another to be thoughtful and do helpful things. Some people have given up the habit of worship, but we must not do that. 
we must keep on encouraging each other, especially since we know that the day of the Lord's coming is getting closer. Do you notice the characteristic of a worship meeting that the writer of Hebrews points out should be happening in this moment? That we should be what? Encouraged. We should be encouraged. This is why we say that we want our church to be life-giving, not life-stealing, right? We're not asking you to give life to us. We're here to give life to you. We want you to leave every Sunday feeling like you were built up, not beat down. It's a huge part of us. It's what we really want for you. We want you to leave at the end of our time of worship feeling like like there's something that came alive inside of me today, and I needed that. I needed that for this week. I want you to be encouraged. We want you to be encouraged, and we don't want you, if you notice, to give up the habit of meeting, the consistency and commitment to the local church leads to what the writer of Hebrews is promising, encouragement. That if we're here consistently and we don't give up the commitment to be here, we will continually be encouraged. And then this last passage, Matthew 16, this is Jesus speaking here, okay? So Simon Peter spoke up, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus has asked them, who do you think I am? And Jesus told him, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. You didn't discover this on your own, it was shown to you by my Father in heaven. So I will call you Peter. He was Simon. Now I'm going to call you Peter, which means a rock. So essentially Jesus is saying, I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. All right. Uh, on this rock, I will build my church and death itself will not have any power over it. Now, here's a very difficult um, moment in, in actually the scriptures to understand. Because he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And he just named Peter Rock. And a lot of people believe that, that because he says, and on this rock, and death will not have any power over it, a lot of people believed in the early church that Peter would never die. Like Jesus had said, all right, it's on you that I'm going to build my church, and our church, you're, you're never going to die. You're going to be the leader of this from this moment on. But it's very interesting. Jesus is speaking Greek. There are three words for rock. There's a masculine, a feminine, and a neutral form, right? And when he speaks to Peter and says, Peter, I'm going to name you Peter or Rocky, he uses the masculine form, Petras, okay, with an O. But then when he says, on this rock, he says Petras, all right, with an A. Differentiating between Peter and Peter's confession. It's Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God that I will build my church on. And death will never overtake that. So with that as a foundation, I thought it would be helpful today to talk about what it means to find chemistry and connection with us at Vortex. I'm going to get really clear about some things that we've never really talked about on a Sunday today. And I think it's going to be really helpful for some of us that are a part of our church and some of you who have been visiting, just kind of asking some questions in your heart about things. See, there, there are, for us to live in, in connection, when we think about chemistry, we have to live in balance. Chemical equations always balance themselves. And so there, there's a tension that happens in that balance. And so there are certain tensions that we have just 
willfully designed our church to live in. And the first one is this, that we are culturally liberal and theologically conservative. We are culturally liberal and theologically conservative. Now, some of y'all don't check out on me because of the language that's there. I'm not using political language. All right, those words, liberal and conservative, are meant to be used as they really mean. Liberal meaning the permission to give liberty, and conservative really meaning the, the constriction to a confined parameters. All right? We are culturally liberal and theologically conservative. Let me explain kind of what this works like. Culture is not our guide. The Word of God is our standard. And I'm going to give you some examples of this. Both Christian culture, church culture, and our dominant culture that we live in, an American culture, they are not our guide. The Bible is our guide, which means that we are willing to walk outside of what may be norms culturally simply to live in the liberty of the Bible and the constrictions of the Bible as well. The easiest example to use is alcohol. There is not a place in the Bible that directly says drinking alcohol is a sin. Not one place. Okay? There's not. As a matter of fact, we know Jesus drank wine. We know that the Apostle Paul uh, kind of admonished Timothy to drink some wine because it would help with his stomach. This was not an issue in the first century. It's a huge issue in our culture. But it was not an issue in the first century. And some of you love to have a glass of red wine with your dinner. It's okay. Some of you love craft beer. You like to visit a brewery and try a new beer every once in a while. It's okay. But the Bible clearly says that drunkenness is a sin. So there is liberty, but there is constriction in the excess of that liberty. So there's liberty that's given biblically, but then the Bible is very clear to go, hey, when you take the liberty that you are being given, so what the Apostle Paul would say in Corinthians, so what do we now? Do we sin even more because of grace? No, we don't. We now live within discipline and constraints. I mean, probably another easy example to give is media, movies, TV, and what we listen to in the forms of music. Now, I grew up in a very conservative Christian culture which taught us if it wasn't Christian, we were not to consume it. If it wasn't Christian music, we didn't listen to it. If it wasn't a Christian book, we didn't read it. If it wasn't a Christian TV show, we didn't watch it. Which is not a biblical idea at all. In Acts chapter 12, the Apostle Paul stands before a group of men at Mars Hill and presents Jesus to people who have never heard. And he quotes in that message, he quotes literally pagan writers who culturally these men would have known to present the message of hope and reconciliation that Jesus had. 
Why? Because those things were not necessarily evil. Now, here's the thing. The Bible is clear that we are not supposed to consume things that are unhealthy for us. So when it comes to media, there are things that are unhealthy because they're not they they provoke things in us or they got, they they solicit certain responses in our or they are of a nature that is sinful. So where the Bible makes it really clear that there's a standard, we hold to that standard, but we live in liberty where there isn't the express standard. Another one is language. There's some words that the Bible uses that some of our Christian culture friends won't even use. Why? Because the Bible at times understands that there's necessary, it's necessary to have strong language. But the Bible clearly says that there's supposed to be no unwholesome language that comes out of our mouth. So there's liberty, but constriction. We are culturally liberal and theologically conservative. Number two, we are politically neutral, but morally centered. Politically neutral, but morally centered. And this isn't out of any sort of fear of the government or worry that our tax-exempt status would be revoked, which is a very present thing in church culture in different parts of the country. This is how we approach life. Because what the Bible cares about, we want to care about. See, there are things that have been labeled uh, Republican or Democrat that are, that are on both sides that are just Bible. Okay, the idea that life is important and should be taken care of and should be protected is not simply a Republican idea. It's a biblical idea. The idea that the earth is a gift from God, that we should steward that gift, that we should take care of this gift that we now live on, and we should be good uh, con conservatives when it comes to this great gift of the earth. It's not just a democratic idea. It's a biblical idea. There's not one party that has a hold on truth. right? We want to care about what the Bible cares about. We want to care about what the Bible cares about. And a lot of times, especially in political seasons, and this just hurts my heart for many of you, Politicians make a living on promising you things that they can never deliver. And some of you get so sucked into the promises that you forget where you're supposed to place your hope. And here's the truth. Our greatest hope is not placed in an elected official, but in the king of all kings. Our greatest hope is placed in the king of kings. Which is why we don't, because Jesus is in control, right? I believe that every one of us should be involved politically, should vote, because Christians would just make a decision to vote. Our whole landscape in this country would look different. 
But our hope isn't in an elected official. Our hope is in Jesus. And when we vote, we need to vote in a way that's obedient to him. Number three, we are a staff-led and volunteer-driven movement of faith, hope, and love. Staff-led, volunteer-driven movement of faith, hope, and love. If you noticed in Ephesians 2 when the Apostle Paul was describing the building in a metaphor of the church, said that you were a part of that building, but he said the foundation of that building is the prophets and the apostles with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Which means that the foundation of the local church is actually its leadership. That's the foundation. That's what's being built on top of. And see, the problem with is, is that many of us have a problem with power. Because power in especially the local church has been kind of leveraged in terms of control. But here's the thing for us. For us, leadership isn't about power. It's about serving. It's about serving. And we as a staff, we are directed by Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see this because this really leverages what we're supposed to be about. Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. They're gifts to the church. This leadership is a gift to the church to, watch this, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. It's our job to prepare you to do ministry. That's what our job is. It's to set you in position that you can be successful in serving God and following Him. That's what our task is. So as we lead you better, the church itself begins to grow. We are a staff-led, volunteer-driven movement of faith, hope, and love. And lastly, we are unashamedly centered on Jesus unashamedly centered on Jesus. Matthew 16, Jesus says that it's that confession that I am the Messiah. I am the one sent to save the world. Jesus says it's on that that I will build my church. And so, see, I want you to understand that if, if that's the truth, okay, if that's the truth about the church, it means that you will not here have your ultimate desires fulfilled. It also means that I won't have my ultimate desires fulfilled here as well. Have you ever noticed when you see my title, what my title is? My title is lead pastor. Because there's somebody else that's senior pastor. There's somebody else who actually sits at the top who's calling all the shots. And the rest of us are just trying to follow him. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor. And it's his desires that are being fulfilled here. Not ours. See, because of our focus on Jesus, we simply exist to invite people to make Jesus the center of their lives and to invest in their never-ending journey to get closer to Jesus. Now, as we get ready to wrap up, 
I want to walk you through something that I just need to repent for. See, this year, we've decided that we can get better at some things that we've neglected. And one of those is that we can do a better job of taking care of people. And I just want to stand before you today, and as a church, the lead pastor tell you that there have been some times that we have not done the best job of taking care of our people. And I feel like the Lord has directed us to repent of that and to come up with a plan to change the way that we do that. Now, I want to remind you of this because this is important. Care comes from connection, and for us, connection happens in groups. Care comes from connection, and connection happens in groups. See, in this season right now, we're, we're kind of not working with small groups as much because we decided uh, about a year ago that we started small groups way too early, we put way too much behind them, and we were getting a really low return out of what we were pushing towards them. So we decided to give them a break so that this fall we can bring them back. It's going to be a very short session, but I promise you, you're going to be very encouraged by that this fall as we begin to kind of grow small groups again in our context. So right now, the way that people connect more than ever is through surf groups. All right, If you're not serving, you're not meeting people, you're not learning names and stories. And so we need to be connected, and the best way to be connected is through, through groups. Now, I want to define to you today what it means to be cared for in the last five minutes of our time together. There's different ways that you will need care. One is in counseling. Now, we understand that we are not, as a pastoral staff, licensed professional counselors. Now, the problem with being a licensed professional counselor versus us is there's stuff that they can do in an ongoing basis that truthfully we, we can't. So we recognize the need. Sometimes you'll call and say, hey, I want to meet. I want to talk about this. And we'll go, no, that's really not good for us. Actually, it's better for you to talk to a counselor. We'll refer you to one. But we do occasionally understand that there's a time to sit down and provide pastoral advice. And in that, we want to make ourselves available. We actually have time in all of our schedules that's blocked off to do that. But the thing about that is, is that we need you to treat that appointment the same way that you treat visiting a doctor or visiting the dentist to get your teeth clean, okay? Just because we're the pastor, we're not going to, we don't do those meetings at night, okay? Those meetings in the time that we have blocked off to do, that's during the day. So if it's that important and you need to sit down and you need some time, then we need you to treat it just like going to the doctor, Okay? We're going to make time for you, but that time, that chunk of time is left for us during the day. Now, here's another thing where you need care, a death in the family. All right? We want to, as a church, we want to be there during your time of grief because we know that it's difficult. But this is actually such a difficult scenario for us to know how to walk through because every family looks different. And so we want to define clearly who we want to be there for. Our primary concern is the loss of a parent, child, or spouse. You lose a parent, child, or spouse, we, we're going to be there instinctively, okay? But if you lose grandma, some of you lose grandma and you've literally never spoken to grandma. And some of you lose grandma, and grandma was like second mom. In those scenarios, we need you to communicate with us and let us know what you need. 
okay? We need to hear from you. And if you need us to be at the viewing, and you need us to be, not even participate, but you just need us to be there to hold your hand and be there in support for you at the funeral, we want to be there, but we need you to ask. We need you to let us know what you need during that time, especially with extended family. Number three, sickness and health issues. Now, I want this to just kind of kind of just resonate for a moment. We do not schedule sick visits. All right, smaller churches, many of you grew up in, if they knew you were going to the hospital, they just, they went. And if you were at home and you were sick, they came. Okay, we don't schedule sick visits, number one, because of the way that our culture has changed. Many people don't even want us to be there. All right, I can tell you, having grown up being in, 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 in and out of the hospital, that, that I, didn't, I don't want somebody there when I'm in the hospital. That, that gown is not a very flattering outfit to be seen in. Okay? But there's some of you that would love a prayer with your pastor right before you go into surgery or afterwards. And if you want that, we want to be there for you, but you need to ask. You need to ask specifically for that. And if you ask, we're going to do our best to make sure that that happens. Number four, emergencies. Now, God forbid, but it's going to happen. That there's going to be some of our families that get the police knocking on the door in the middle of the night. And it's going to be something that we don't even want to think about right now. We don't want to even kind of contemplate what it could be. But we want to be there for you. So immediately, as of right now, we are instituting a pastor on call. Here's our phone number. 704-438-9923. Ends in Michael Jordan's number. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but I was stop point that out. Um, if you call that, it will ring through to a pastor. There's an option to select uh, for for pastor on call. Okay, and we we probably won't pick up the phone, but within a few few minutes, we'll get the message, and we'll get in touch with you. Okay, can I just tell you what's not an emergency? Two a.m. Your marriage falls apart. All right, not an emergency. It took you ten years to get in that mess. All right. It's not, that's not something you call in the morning, we'll schedule an appointment, okay? But we do want to be there in case of an emergency. And lastly, prayer needs. If we're going to be a community of faith, hope, and love, we need to be praying for each other. And one of the ways that we're going to start doing that immediately right now is through a tool called Pray.com. We want everyone to download on your phone and install an app called Pray.com, and join the community called Vortex Church. All right, it is a private social network. It's not like Facebook. Only the people from our church can see what you post on there. And you can get on there and post, hey, my kids have been sick for a whole week. I'd really love for you to pray for my kids. And what's awesome about that is that instead of a like, like on Facebook, when someone hits the little heart button, it notifies you and says, Kevin Simmons just prayed for you. Lindsey Toole just prayed for you. John Mikesell just prayed for you. And you'll get to see how your church prays over the needs that you express. 
Now, there have been times in the past five years that we've dropped the rope. We're home. We're home base, and we're supposed to hold the rope for you. There have been some times that we've dropped the rope. Here's what I'm here today to tell you is that we're going to do our very best to keep a hold of that rope and not drop it. Because I can promise you to the best of our ability, we care about you and we want to help you find your way home. Because at Vortex, this is the last thing you notes today. We're going to go through this very quickly. Everyone is welcome because every person matters. We are a church for all people, not just for a select few. Everybody is welcome because every person matters. But nobody is perfect because we all need a Savior. That includes me. I'm not perfect. I hate to give you that break, your, break up your perception of me. But nobody is perfect. We all need a Savior. And lastly, anything is possible when we come together. See, for some of us today, we come in having been through the storms of life and having let go of the rope. And if you're honest, right now you're wandering around in your backyard blind. And today, you are in the perfect place to take hold again of the rope that leads to life in Jesus. Because that's what we are here for. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.